Jamie Lewis, and this is Consumed, candid conversations about life and flavor. Before we get into it, I want to share a bit about our sponsor. The inaugural season of Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life Magazine. Now in its 10th year, Slow Life Magazine celebrates the culture of San Luis Obispo with features on the people, influences, products, and businesses that keep this city moving and shaking. I've written the food column in Slow Life Magazine since 2015, where I cover restaurants and food trends here. And over the years, I've seen how devoted Slow Life Magazine's following really is. Readers love learning about their community and weaving into the fabric of this very special place. To learn how you can subscribe, be sure to visit their website at slowlifemagazine.com. At my kitchen table today is James Onaveros. It's not easy to categorize what James does because he does so much. First, he is a ninth-generation Californian, the descendant of the first Spanish settlers of the Santa Maria Valley. He's also a rancher. His family owns Rancho Onaveros in Santa Maria, and he has raised cattle all his life. But what James is probably best known for is his work in the wine industry. While he was a student at Cal Poly in the 90s, James planted a five-acre vineyard on his parents' ranch. Today, his native nine wine is a pioneer for Pinot Noir in Santa Barbara County. And that's really saying something. How does a Santa Maria cowboy become one of the most respected wine industry figures in the U.S.? Listen as James and I discuss his roots and how he's grown. But be warned, this one does go long. I love listening to James' insights and stories, and I didn't want him to stop. Okay, here's James. Will you, I mean, I've known you now for... I think it's 10 years, probably. Wow, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I met you through uh, some friends, but I was working for a wine marketing company, and you were kind of, you were, at the time, I think, just considering using us. Yeah, that sounds right, too. Yeah, but... Boy, got to peel back a lot of chapters to get there. I know. Yeah. I know. And then I have written about you a number of times, Mm -hmm. Um, so I know your story, but I mean, how, when, when somebody says, hi, James, what do you do? What do you say? Well, I, I tend to keep it super superficial and vague yeah. because there's just a point where, you know, I'm at this stage in my life where you, you the, the follow-up question needs to be, well, do, do you want to know? Like, yeah. Which answer do you or, want? <laughs> or like, you know, you want to go deep or where do yeah. you want to go? Uh, so, I mean, when I think of if someone says, what do you do? I usually just say I'm in the wine business. Okay. Or, you know, we're still in the cattle business as well in a yeah. minor way. So those are the, my two points of reference. Okay. But if I were to say, oh, really, what do you do in the wine business? That gets more complicated. Yeah. Now, now, now we went from a nickel to a quarter. Yeah. Uh, and that, <laughs> that, you know, that's, I think what's been fun for me is that I really do a lot of different things. Um, mm-hmm. And that started, you know, with, you know, over 20 years ago when I, it, you know, it just, it, it's, it's never, um, a cliche that, that doesn't have impact when you say it's just amazing how time flies. Yeah. You know, when I was 21, I was thinking about, you know, one, I was loving to just party and have fun with my friends yeah. and drinking 
beer and spirits, um, less, lesser, um, you know, would have been wine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I started to put together like, wait a minute, I love the cattle business. There's this seemingly similar kind of one annual season that comes in the wine business in terms of the growing season and its mm -hmm. product, like the cattle business that I grew up in on the cow-calf side. And so that's what kind of got me started was thinking about vineyards as I was going to Cal Poly um, and trying to figure out what am I going to do when mm -hmm. I'm done, if I ever get done there. Yeah. And uh, so that, you know, that's where everything started off with uh, on the vineyard side. And but most, I'm sorry to interrupt, but most 21-year-olds don't, act on it the way that you did. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, you're making it sound very like everybody does this, but not everybody did it the way you did it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess my perspective was never that I was looking through anyone else's lens. And so mm -hmm. it just, you know, it's kind of like when we, my wife and I have twins and people go, well, what's twins like? Well, we don't know anything else. <laughs> it's so. normal. <laughs> exactly. It's normal. It's normal. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. I mean, for, I had the, um, the unique vantage point of growing up on a, a little humble uh, cattle operation. So we had some land, but it was in the middle of an oil field. And so it's in, you know, in what, in what city? In Santa Maria Valley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you. And so it's important home, yeah. home to me is, is, uh, and it's funny, it's back to your perspective. I always refer to where I grew up is Santa Maria and, and frankly we're you know quite a ways out of town mm -hmm. um, but it's part of the overall Santa Maria Valley and I think that's where a lot of these weird perspectives that now at this point you know after after a lot of years of chipping away you go wow I was a weird kid and then <laughs> to to just decide hey I want to go try to do this at 20 21 years old mm -hmm. Um, about getting into the vineyard business because it, today it would be, it's a hip, cool thing. Yes. It, it wasn't really um, that when I started, but it's back to the resources that, that you, you know, recognize. And so we had this piece of land that was um, a piece that probably no one else would have been interested in, in buying, but my folks were because they wanted to be outside of, you know, the, the busy closeness of being, being in town. Mm -hmm. Um, and for my dad, there's this sense of legacy that that's where my family settled the Rancho Tepesque land grant was mm -hmm. out in that area, um, pre statehood. And mm -hmm. so we've, we've got a family history that goes back, uh, back to the, you know, the origins of, of those days of Mexican land grants. Right. And so that's where I grew up is in an oil field running mm -hmm. cattle, uh, raising a little bit of dry farm grain to feed those cattle and looking over uh, the historic land grant that my family had established in, um, in the early you know days of, of California being part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. and you know, looking out over what on the other side of the valley on our own, own old ranch were vineyards and farming and things that uh, were attractive to me. Mm -hmm. So I think that was part of, of what was seeded in my mind about why this was something that could make sense. And you were an Elks Rodeo kid too, right? Didn't you it, do a lot of that? Yeah. In terms of, um, you know, that's, it's, it's, again, it's so odd to date yourself and feel like 
wow, this was a long time ago, but in the days when I was a kid and, uh, and I should include you and, you know, you and mm-hmm. I are roughly the same age, although I mm-hmm. look like I'm ready to retire. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> You've done a lot more than I have to. <laughs> well, it, you know, to your point, this this Santa Maria Valley is it's a it's a community that's it's got its roots in in blue collar things and mm-hmm. farming and cattle and oil um, and so yeah, when I grew up, going to the rodeo was that was the big like one annual event that yeah. brought the town out. And so I started uh, going to that just as a kid, like anybody else. Just and it was such it. a big deal. It, it was. was such a big deal. I mean, I don't mean yeah. to discount that it's a big deal now. Just as a kid There's, in Napomo, that was a big event. Yeah, well, it really was. Um, and I think it, that's kind of my, my point about just a sign of the times is that there's so many more things going on mm-hmm. now that there weren't when we were kids. And mm-hmm. so that that would be a place you know where everyone would go socialize and be seen yeah. and have fun and uh and I think that's one of the places that really taught me about a community approach more than yeah it was a rodeo but it was you know raising you know money I just I happened to see mm-hmm. this like infomercial for the rodeo uh, over the weekend mm-hmm. and you know they've raised like 12 or 14 million dollars for the community uh, oh over the years and so it's interesting so much of of just how life's layers keep adding to to make you or your thought process what what it is mm-hmm. and that was part of it is you know I was there cuz I was you know grew up on a cattle ranch mm-hmm. and loved you know being a cowboy and yet it was also there that I I started to learn that like hospitality is a big thing in Santa Maria. Yeah, it really um, is. It, it's, people, it's a legacy. I mean, it's a birthright. People can throw these, these concepts around, but I think if you were fortunate enough to be, you know, for some reason connected to a place where you really got to see what that looks like mm. and in a humble way, it's not buying a ticket to a black tie event. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, people were, were barbecuing, um, and offering, you know, come over and join us. And mm-hmm. it was just a, a really nice social atmosphere. Um, and it taught me a lot about, you know, being gracious and bringing, inviting mm-hmm. people in and, and, you know, hosting and being hospitable. Mm-hmm. And there was a, you know, when we think, you know, it's back to how life comes back to wine and food, mm-hmm. you know, learning, firsthand that there's a real authentic food culture based around Santa Maria barbecue. Yeah. Um, and that the, you know, ironically wine was around through that, but it hadn't integrated yet. Well, and I mean, if you go way back, am I right in thinking the Adobe, I mean the Tepesque Adobe, weren't there vines that were planted oh, yeah. around there? I mean, we're talking centuries ago, but, yeah. um, that was one of the first crops I think. Yeah. I mean the connection back to, you know, Mexico and California having um, such a connection to to you know farming of wine grapes of of course ties to to its connection to Spain mm-hmm. um, where my family originally came from and it's yeah it's just to me it's almost it's it's becoming more surreal as I get older as I you know there's so many great records that were kept in those days mm-hmm. to actually find that. Like our family was in Laredo, um, 
which is a little town in in Mexico. So sorry, jumping from one like <laughs> present time to like five hundred years. Well, ago. it's common actually when I talk to you to be jumping. Let's go back four generations. No, wait, <laughs> let's go back seven. It's like it is bouncy, but I mean yeah. that's you have the benefit of generational. You have something that most of us don't have. Yeah, my I mean my roots that are traceable, I think my mom's going to kill me, but I think it goes, I mean, we have a lot of Scottish, we have a lot of English. Um, but really in between from there, the strongest history that we know of is like dust bowl. Yeah. Um, and some East coast. And that's really the extent of our extensive knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, I mean, the fact that you have records and you live in the place that all of this took you know, that it happened yeah, is something that, yeah, most of us do not have the benefit of having. Yeah. It, it, I feel very fortunate in that regard, um, that it colors your perspective in, in a way for me that I think is really constructive and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's easy to have the misconception that, Oh, these people had this really fascinating history and had these land grants. We, we didn't grow up with money at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, my dad and mom, um, were, I mean, probably the, the lower end of blue collar. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet growing up in a town like, like I did, like no one cared. It didn't matter. Yeah. There, there wasn't, there wasn't like big bougie lifestyle there. And so it didn't matter. And, and yet I didn't, it's also interesting that I didn't really realize you have to get to a certain age to have the capacity to appreciate that history. Yeah. Um, and also in my family, because it's a history of loss in a lot of regard, mm-hmm. you know, in the enormous land grant in Orange County that was, you know, sold to, to go acquire the Rancho Tepesque, um, and Rancho Tepesque through the course of droughts and legal battles, once California became part of the U S that was lost, you know, largely over the years. Um, but my, my great grandfather would have been the last one who still had a, you know, portion, uh, in my direct lineage of the mm-hmm. Rancho Tepesque land grant. And that didn't really all get clear to me until I was, you know, probably in high school or college mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's just, there's a lot of like chatter and, and, you know, you'd hear a little, some stories around the family, but. And you were a kid. I yeah, mean. Yeah. And you're a kid and it's like, yeah, who cares? Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and then the, the other part was it was largely lost. And so yeah. Yeah. my, uh, I had a, great uncle Porphy and he had, uh, the remaining kind of, you know, significant chunk that was all just cattle ground. Mm-hmm. And so back to the, you know, where, where we were initially starting is we're on the South side of the Santa Maria Valley mm-hmm. on the East edge. We're on this kind of, um, because of all the fault shifting, and, um, we're on this pushed up elevation of an old estuary from the ocean. So Mm. silty, um, wind blown kind of soils that when they're dry and if we work the ground and you step in it, it's like talcum powder. It just Mm. kind of blows up in the air. Mm. Um, so that's us on the little ranch. I grew up on the South side. And as you look across the Valley to the North, where all the great vineyards and wineries, um, that we think of for Santa Maria, Bienacito, Rancho Viñedo, Cambria, Byron, River Bench, Good Child, uh, Le Bon Climat. Now, 
that would have been to the north where my, my great uncle still had this little piece that uh, is, is roughly back where Kenneth Volk's winery is. I didn't realize that. And so what did he do? He sold? Uh, they, so like us, he, you know, he had cattle. He mm-hmm. um, farmed some grains. And over the course of time, um, when he passed, it kind of kept dwindling. And, and ironically, my, uh, gosh, I don't, I don't want to get my lineage wrong, but <laughs> yeah, let's, really. let's say my, my cousin, they just, just sold off like the last 200 acres about yeah. probably five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is of, of this, the, the Northeast part of a land grant that was 8,900 acres. And mm-hmm. probably in my opinion, um, one of the, the real prime pieces of property in Santa Barbara County, if mm-hmm. not the whole coast. Mm-hmm. So it's just fascinating um, yeah. to back to your original point at 21. This wasn't all baked in yet. Uh-uh. It, it started to, this was just like, Hey, I, I want to go do something with my own hands. And, you know, I, I was thinking about vineyards and wine in contrast of like, it's either that or do I get into the vegetable business, which just seemed very prevalent in Santa Maria. Mm -hmm. Um, But that just seemed like an endless grind uh, to me. Well, and (laughs) yeah, there's no pause, right? Because of our climate. appreciation kind of either. But yeah, there is no pause. It just keeps going. Not like, I mean, I know we kind of hate the vine cycle sometimes, (laughs) but then also it is done there is an end point oh yeah for the year and there i mean that's a beautiful thing but talk a little bit about i mean it's funny to hear you tell this story because when i've been entrusted with this story i of course like sexy it up and (laughs) um and also i really do think that a lot of vintners are not great um they don't know how to tell their story in a way I'm not talking about you here, but Mm -hmm. in a way that really catches the drama of what's going on. And so, I mean, what I understand of your story is, yes, big land grant, 8,900 acres Mm -hmm. covering the San Maria Valley, including all of the best stuff. I mean, the stuff that we know now. Yeah. And, uh, from a, from a vineyard perspective, I don't think that that's debatable at this point. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So then over the course of, seven generations, mm-hmm. I think, right? Yeah. It's sold off. Yeah. Um, and your family, your parents, mm-hmm. your dad has this almost, I, mean, I don't want to say a need, I don't want to put words yeah, in his mouth, no, but a I'm... need to be back as part of that system. Yeah. And then... Um, and talks my poor mother into it. <laughs> yeah. I never heard that part. Yeah. Okay. And so she says... All Let's right. And, and this is when you were young. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, then we, we moved out to the ranch, uh, full time in 76. Okay. So I was two. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, I don't have memories of anywhere mm-hmm. other than there. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that's how it went. And my sister who's eight years older, um, you know, so she, she and I were, you know, the, the piece that we grew up on was is a half section, so it's 320 mm-hmm. acres. And uh, that's a lot of room to get to just be out and yeah. on your own. But then it's also surrounded by, you know, thousands and thousands of acres that actually really is pretty unha- uninhabited. Mm-hmm. Um, our, we are now seeing a few neighbors, you know, I've got... Oh, I'm sure. And uh, 
within a, probably a two-mile radius. There's probably five or six homes. So mm-hmm. that, but that's the, a change. The piece that I always come back to with this is, well, and also your parents, like you said, really didn't have much of anything. So they yeah. had to work hard. And oh, yeah. your dad worked in oil, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And did your mom also? My mom just was, you know, taking care of us and yeah. trying to do what she could do to help at the ranch. Mm-hmm. And uh, dad worked for, for uh, I think the way he tells the story is I'm recalling, I think he went to work for the Getty Oil Company mm-hmm. like the day he got out of high school. So, Which is the way people held jobs. Yeah. is I mean, they don't anymore like that, but you have that one job or maybe two for a long time. He he had two because Texaco wound up buying Getty. And so... He had two different employers. (laughs) (laughs) Same job description, two different employers. Yeah, Yeah, and so bought back this piece, and it's always critical to me in telling this story that it's not part of Rancho Tepesque. It's actually looking over it. It wasn't... Rancho Tepesque wasn't for sale. Mm-hmm. Right, or at least not at a that's, price that they could buy. No, it, it, both are true. Okay, that, that none of that's for sale, and and those, you know, what's interesting with agriculture is we kind of quantum leap now from mm-hmm. where I was as a kid and, and that to to the agriculture that we see happening today is those great pieces of property they don't come for sale. Yeah, um, that's not how agriculture works, and and I think that's that's a really it's a really fascinating distinction about if you, you can certainly call agriculture an industry, but here on the coast, there's more to it than that. Um, there's a sense of legacy that goes along with these properties and these families that, that it finances are always important, but mm-hmm. it transcends that. Um, it makes it really hard for newcomers to, to find a seat at the table because, um, it's it's not when you have a piece of property and let's just take you know those vineyards or or even the vegetable ground in the Santa Maria Valley where it's been vetted over time that this is a terrific place mm-hmm. um, for for agriculture. It's stable water. It's a climate that's um, just so the longest coolest growing season. Um, for wine grapes of anywhere that you know, everyone says kind of period, but certainly mm-hmm. that I'm aware of. And so you can do all these really great things um, in that. And and because of that, there's kind of a, uh, there's like a secret handshake or something mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. just people don't let those things go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's a, it's been an interesting ride to try to figure out how to, to, you know, as I became an adult to go, where's your spot in this? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, luckily I almost by accident, you know, took my first steps into doing that as a Mm -hmm. very young guy planting my first vineyard. Well, and I mean, I'm also always struck by how generous your parents were. Yeah. Because what ended up happening is you, as you were a Cal Poly student, I believe Mm -hmm. you just decided I'm going to plant a vineyard on my parents' property, something that had never been part of their no. life reality <laughs> space, any of that. No. And, and they weren't even, you know, we would, we would have a little wine around the holidays, you know, but they weren't wine drinkers at all. Um, and, and yet, you know, I think there's, I think that's the beauty of, of coming from a family that didn't have 
some established operation other than that, you know, we, we were trying to continue to run cattle because mm-hmm. they just enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, it, it's true. When I think of myself as a parent, if my 21 year old were to come to me and, and talk about something that had, you know, kind of, it sounds again today, like it sounds sexy and cool. And like, because 21 year olds you know, do that now. Yeah. Ones with lots it, of, it's a some, thing. Yeah. It's definitely a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but definitely, you know, it wasn't then. And when, um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I mean, my, yeah. my mother had gone to Hancock, uh, but you know, to go commit to a, you know, a four year degree. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's easier today to understand, um, where their thought process might've been because they were going, Hey, this kid's showing the initiative. Yeah. Let's open the door and give them the opportunity. But that that's easier today to, mm-hmm. to think that than, um, you know, it was very open-minded and gracious because, there's a whole lot that goes beyond it's all, you know, back to the, are we talking about the veneer conversation yeah. or the deep one? And, you know, we're in a, in a valley that has a hundred year average rainfall of 12 inches that all comes in the winter. And mm-hmm. so with the vineyard, you know, in our area, there's a requirement for irrigation. Yeah. Um, we don't get enough rainfall to keep vineyards alive. And yet you were dry, dry farming grain at at some point. Yeah. Do you think that's possible now to continue to dry farm grain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still happening. In fact, we, we still do it, uh, on a, you know, very small scale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's still done certainly less and less. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of what you see with coastal agriculture is the highest and best use for that property continues to shift and go upscale in terms of kind of the economic hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so if you're on a piece of property that has ground that's farmable and you have water, Mm -hmm. then at that point, grains are are not going to be the choice. No. Um, It's going to be something at higher value. I remember driving on the ranch with you and it was, I mean, I'm not an ag person. I've, and I, that was really reinforced this last quarter when I taught agriculture <laughs> communications at Poly. Um, no, I'm a, I'm a journalism gal, but, but more importantly, you have a real appreciation for it. Oh, I do. <laughs> I really do. Um, but I remember we were driving and you being the ag guy that you are, you actually stopped the truck and said, get out. And we got out and I didn't really even know what you were going to point out. And there's this big pump. You were so proud of this pump. <laughs> and I think you said something like that pump right there, like it could handle a small municipality and it cost more than like, <laughs> I, you gave me some crazy figure and it was like, this is the thing that makes it possible. Yeah. All of this possible. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm late this morning because I was with my bookkeeper before I came here. <laughs> And, you know, my bookkeeper has a part-time role also as my psychologist (laughs) after all all the years, you know, she's been with me since 06. And, uh, it, it just, I don't think people have an appreciation for what this takes. Mm -mm. Um, I always look at the, the debt that I have strapped onto my future and it's something that, you know, 99% of the people in this in this community would drive right by and not even see that infrastructure there. Yep. You know, it's, it's holes in the ground and pumps Mm -hmm. and power and filtration and things that, 
you know, you've got it. That's what makes it back to, it's not just the secret handshake of, do you want to buy this property? Mm. It's people, you know, do you have an appreciation for what this level of commitment is? And can you do it? And then, then there's, then can you actually do it? I mean, aside yeah. from just having financial resources, do yeah. you have good people that yeah. can help you do this? You can't do it by yourself. Although yeah. you kind of did, I think at, at the beginning, when did you plant the vineyard? I planted in 97 was my first, first piece. So I was 23. But you did have some friends come out and help you. And you have to say who those people are because it's like, it's incredible now seeing where (laughs) they are. Yeah. Well, it's, well, there's, there's some, some fascinating, just a a lot of, of, uh, that time it was with other young people who were, you know, ranch rodeo kids and, Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, a guy who we're no longer talking, but uh, mm. Chad Rava was a good friend of mine. He got kind of, I would say, pushed out for, for a short time out of his family. And so he came mm. down and lived with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he helped me plant the initial vineyard. And then from there, wound up going and doing this on his own. And at this point, you know, there's a local name where, you know, he went out to, to Shandon, Mm-hmm. Um, planted, you know, bought some old vineyards, replanted them. Mm-hmm. His family's longtime farming family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ironically, you know, there are, our kind of lack of discussion between each other now is, is over water. Um, as oh. I farm in the Shandon Valley and right. so did Chad, he since sold his farming operation to put a focus on, um, like the, uh, event space that they, yep. him and his wife started a big event space this is crazy. I mean, these are the things that you realize here's a friendship that goes back to, you know, high school Mm -hmm. and we would, you know, vacation together with our families and we don't talk now over water issues. Amazing. Um, you know, it's that real. Oh God, this is, there's a world that's going on for us in agriculture while everyone else is just, you know, driving up and down the freeway going, wow. Look and drinking your wine. <laughs> drinking yeah. Well, hopefully not at the same time, but yeah. Or, or right. Eat, you know, eating the, the vegetables. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a real thing and it's, uh, you know, there, there's a overused adage that I am reminded of all the time. I think it was Mark Twain about whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting. Mm, yep. Um, and so, yeah, mm. it's just, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating world. Yeah. Um, but in that era, you know, it was, we didn't have a bunch of acres to plant. So, you know, mm. got some friends, my folks came out, um, and helped. And, you know, we started very humbly with a very low budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, you know, this wasn't, you didn't hire a vineyard management company. We just <laughs> literally took T posts that w- would have been used uh, in the in the barbed wire fences to keep the cattle in, and started the trellis with that. Mm. Bought uh, you know vines were probably the biggest expense, and where'd you we get did them it from? all ourselves? I'm always curious. I've always it's, wanted to know that first round I got from uh, Duarte Vineyards. Okay, yeah. And what were the clones again that you planted? So I planted all Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. um, and in that period of time, that was far from like. The, the safe bet yeah. Chardonnay was, was, uh, booming mm. and Santa Maria is a great place for Chardonnay. In mm. fact, you know, Kendall Jackson, who I think, you know, a lot of people would argue who's a, who's a more critical player for Chardonnay mm-hmm. than KJ. Uh, KJ had made their first real 
uh, substantial purchase, which is today Cambria Winery, right, right in the middle of our family's old land grant. Yeah. Um, well, it kind so, of all is. Yeah. All of those guys are in the middle of that. Yeah. yeah. So Chardonnay was the thing, but I, I was of a, of a mindset at, again, because you have to do all these things years in advance. Mm-hmm. If you want to get vines to plant in 97, you kind of start prepping. You're not harvesting in 98. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, your preparations have to happen the year before mm-hmm. so that the field is ready. And so, um, I, I was going to Cal Poly. I was actually working for Kendall Jackson seasonally full time while I was going to Cal Poly full time. So I'd take off largely the fall quarter and, and do mm-hmm. that. Um, and the, the concept in my head was, I'm never going to be a big player, so find something where there's maybe a, a more niche opportunity, and that I just had had got to try. Um, you know, I remember one of those you know those moments that you don't forget with wine. Mm. Uh, I was trying um, with again some good friends at the Lake Nassimeno on break. I had a Lane Tanner Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, and Lane's one of my heroes. Um, mm-hmm. She made these beautiful, elegant, fresh, savory, balanced. Um, they weren't big, unctuous wines. And, you know, that was after like three days of just crushing a truckload of Coors Light. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think. <laughs> Did almost, it taste a little different than it, that? It was a little better. Yeah. yeah. And our, I remember I was with uh, my, a good friend of mine, Steve Iwasco, and all these guys who we always were, you know, misbehaving together and, and I think it was a concept of like the adults who are around like let's get these guys to sober up by saying instead of you know continuing what you've been doing on the lake all day you gotta drink wine if you're gonna have anything yeah. with dinner we're gonna pop this cork and we're sure you're not interested <laughs> yeah. yeah and that that was you know it was really cool that uh, you know whoa what's that mm-hmm. and um uh, so that had happened probably two or three years before, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was probably just starting college. And so it had planted a seed. And then that with, with the, the Pinot thing, certainly having not done at all what we think about today, nope. it wasn't even on the pie chart for varieties. It was so small, but the, the thing that I was thinking with the vineyard was there's a long game opportunity here. Um, as a science student, I did these like replicated trials of all these different rootstocks and clones uh, with the first five acres being what in my mind would be like my vetting to understand Mm -hmm. what's going to do the best. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that's how it started. And, you know, from there I wound up, uh, several years later adding another little block and Mm -hmm. then, you know, just life keeps moving and, um, well, I, and the wine is good. I mean, the juice is, you wouldn't have kept doing it if it hadn't been good. Yeah. Um, no. And it's it, different. It It is. It It's, I think what, what I was able to, to take advantage of is between working. Um, so, I, I mean, it's really interesting to think that at the same time, in the same year, I was working full time in grower relations for Kendall Jackson. Um, and so I, I had my, my boss, Denise Georgie, who was, uh, a slightly older Denise got a few years on me. And so she had more experience. She'd worked at Mondavi before. And so she was kind of sharing with me what she could. 
And then also just put a tremendous amount of trust in me because KJ was growing so much. They just needed somebody to go help, you know, find these tons and make sure they're being farmed right. And that's what the grower relations role does is Mm -hmm. you're acting as kind of the representative for the winery to make sure you're getting the the best quality you can um, in a way that works for the, the grower as well. And so I got to, to be driving, you know, up and down the coast from, as far north as uh, Santa Clara County, Santa Cruz County, um, all the way down to, really it ended in the San Ynez Valley, but we were even getting a little bit of product back then from like uh, Temecula and Cucamonga, those areas. Really? Because at the time, we were short, the California industry was short on grapes and wine. Yeah. Um, and so they were, you know, trying to really reach far and wide to to get access. Can you imagine being short? I mean, as an industry, I mean, right. Yeah, no, it, it really, uh, that hasn't been the same since. I mean, uh, again, I don't feel like I've been at this for 20 plus years, but that was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. In, in local wine industry years, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Back to the the concept of the Pinot, um, for me, I was learning, you know, you're just sponging all, all this data from all every, you know, inter interaction with growers and the respect that I was getting to, to go talk to the, the KJ growers, the winemaking team at KJ, Mm -hmm. the viticulturalists who I'd get to interact with, you know, Dan, Daniel Roberts is a guy who. You know, again, it isn't probably a name that most wine lovers will know, but was a very respected soil scientist and mm-hmm. viticulturalist and, you know, him kind of helping shape my, you know, milk of a few minutes of, of here's what's mm-hmm. happening in my life on our ranch. And he said, oh, super poor soils. You probably could really do very high density plantings there mm-hmm. and have it work because it's not going to be overly vigorous. And, you know, that years later we've got... Uh, almost a hundred acres of you know, four and a half foot rows by four foot vines. Mm-hmm. Um, not for my own wines, but for another project that mm-hmm. happens on the ranch. Um, but to your point, what we, what we quickly learned was that Pinot had been hot and cold in terms of it was really good, um, on good years. And yet I think the farming has improved so much between, you know, those those early days of the commercial wine industry in Santa Barbara and San Luis County, which I would say would be this you know starting in the '60s, but really in the '70s. Mm. So we saw compelling opportunities with Pinot, but it wasn't consistent. Yeah. And then when you you fast forward to the '90s, where the wine grape acreage of California essentially doubled from uh, the '70s. To, it doubled in the nineties and that along with that came, um, all this new rootstock and all these new clones and a focus on trellising and there was drip irrigation and all these things that just weren't even around in the seventies. A game changer. Yeah. And, and yet it it was almost overwhelming that you had to just kind of take the shotgun approach and try all these things and know that some of them aren't going to be as good and, and it's going to take time to weed out what's the best. So you wind up with, I mean, I've done stories on the history of Edna Valley grapes. They wind up bloated. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, I mean, overly, I think overly sweet 
not enough concentration, mm-hmm. wines that are, you know, even though maybe acreage or tonnage is doubling by the 90s, quality perhaps takes either a dip or remains the same despite higher volume. I would say, you know, and this would be my um, my my somewhat uh, probably varnished um, thought is I, I would say that the quality, the, the kind of hit or miss elements of high quality in the bottlings that I've got to, to taste out of this, you know, the seventies and the early eighties, we'd see these moments of greatness surrounded by a whole lot of mediocre and then some just not very good. Mm-hmm. And then when you brought all these new elements and learning um, into the nineties with all these new plantings, the level of consistency of just general quality, I think went up substantially. Mm-hmm. What also changed dramatically is, is the style of wines. And so that wouldn't even really be in the nineties. It'd be more once we got into the, the you know, mid to late two thousands. Yeah. And if we're thinking specifically about Pinot, it's where, you know, I wound up contracting my little vineyard it's back to my thought processes. I'm a small, small grower, small guy. Yeah. I need to find other small growers, small guys. So, you know, I had the ability to, to get a contract with KJ and Sanford and, and bigger players, but I wound up selling to Foxen and mm-hmm. Brian Loring, um, from Loring wine company. Uh, and cause I wanted to see what would really small artisanal producers do with the grapes and then what would be the direct feedback that I know I'm more likely to get from a smaller operator right. than a really big one. Um, and so, you know, that wound up kind of then my first, first production went to, I, I'm forgetting Steve Dooley from Stephen Ross mm-hmm. here in, in mm-hmm. San, San Luis Obispo, but, um, those three. And then I, I wound up taking a kind of a marketing approach to my vineyard that I, and I was likening in my mind to like what the Rocchioli family did in the Russian rivers. Hmm. Find, you've got this vineyard asset, find really good winemakers, which I was already starting to do, and then see what they do with it yeah. to, to inform your understanding of, of what this vineyard can do and what the wine styles could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wound up working with, you know, AP Vin, a guy named, uh, AP Vin is Andrew Vangelo who so Brian Loring, Andrew, these were like really um, kind of the poster boys for this new style of bigger, richer, riper mm-hmm. California Pinot that I wasn't working with, but you could say Saduri would have been in that group. Mm-hmm. And then that, that like in the next kind of generation of the wine business gets followed up by like the Costa Browns yeah. um, of, you know, that style that the wine spectator fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really for me fascinating that, um, in the intervening time I had finished at Cal Poly, left Kendall Jackson, moved to, um, to Sonoma and worked for the Gallo family mm-hmm. in Sonoma and on their Russian river and Sonoma coast vineyards. Cause I wanted to learn more about yeah. Pinot and Chardonnay. That's a good education. There. Yeah. Um, and then it spent time up there and wound up ultimately kind of skipping, you know, again, quantum leaping through history here <laughs> to c- come back and work for the Miller family. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of basing my, my time out of the Bienacito vineyard, mm-hmm. uh, which had just this, you know, uh, almost mythical 
all-star cast of, yeah. of wineries because they had chose, I would say also, they I've never heard them say that, almost a, a super big Rocchioli model. Yeah. You know, where let's find all these little producers who really care about quality and see what they can do. And so my vineyard, where I was taking the same approach, was starting to gain really great notoriety. Um, and I don't mean this in, in any way uh, without, you know, a, a gracious and, and respectful thanks to these guys, but they were making wines that just didn't really interest me. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, that big, rich, ripe mm-hmm. style. And that is not what I think of as Native Nine. No, it, it really, from from the beginning, I, I love the fact that, you know, in California, we have weather that allows us to do almost anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wines that were the most compelling to me, you know, it comes back to, you know, at, at probably 20, 21 years yeah. old, trying Lane Tanner and, and thinking, wow, this is like savory and fresh and, yeah. and really lively. And then through the course of, of all that time, um, I mean, this is where I feel, you know, so fortunate in that era of time, we were just discovering that, that Burgundy isn't like the perfect Holy grail for everything they do. Mm. There are great spots there. There are great producers there who make wines that are entirely different than what we can do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and Burgundy, I should say, I don't know that everybody listening would know this, but Burgundy is the birthplace of the Pinot Noir variety. It, it really is. And the benchmark. And and then I would say until that point in the mid-90s, that was that was the, the um, maybe trying to think of the right way to put it, not the icon. I mean, the icon mm-hmm. sounds kind of cheesy, but I, I would say it was the archetype mm-hmm. for what, you know, young California producers from the seventies and eighties were trying to produce this mm-hmm. very small handful that made Santa Barbara County what it was. Yeah. It's back to Lane Tanner. Then you start adding in, you know, the, the Fox and winery, mm-hmm. um, Au bon climat. Mm-hmm. You know, Coupe was not a Pinot focused producer, but you know, Chardonnays um, from Coupe and and kind of um, a similar approach. Also, just it, an old world fascination, always sure. trying to get there. For sure. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, um, and you know, Adam Tolmack from uh, Ojai, who had been a partner at Au bon climat, Chris mm-hmm. Whitcraft, and tasting these wines that to me. At the, that time in the 90s, the really big deal was the Russian River. Mm-hmm. Um, and those wines, just, you know, their signatures, they're, they're a bit more plush. They're mm-hmm. a bit more generous. Um, they're more giving, and mm-hmm. they're more forward. They're not as lean and savory mm-hmm. and acid-driven. Um, and so there was always this interesting ebb and flow that that Santa Barbara could create such a huge amount of interest, but it wasn't with big volumes or, mm-hmm. or big production. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that it was people kind of sticking to their guns, sort so, of rogue. So much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, even today, like, it's hard to not not just kind of root for, you know, mm-hmm. Those brands I've just mentioned, they've been relevant the whole time, and they've yeah. never really changed. No. They just stuck out a course that that they charted, you know, 30 years ago, yeah. um, which 
which is really cool. That is such a, I mean, that is a, a storyline that I come back to just because I love it over and over again. People who, I mean, it's, it's people like you who you've got this bizarre idea and you have just enough scrappiness and just enough support from people yeah. to pull it off. And I mean, and that support can be really minimal too. Sometimes yeah. it can just be a couple people who say, go do it. You're, I think that's where you and I have always just shared this, um, you know, ethos about it. People who really are committed to something, probably not because of the finances, yep. but probably because, um, they just find something special and they want to figure out how to try to capture it and share it. And they can't help it. Yeah, exactly. There comes a point where, where you're just committed to it and it's innate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Will you talk to me a little bit about Santa Maria itself? You know, I'm just obsessed. Sure. I actually just, I just sent off yet another email trying to get a story about Santa Maria. I just trying to get people to care about this place that is so rich and abundant, but also so, um, it is not a sexy place. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I would say to me, that's what, what I love about today's contemporary time and where things are at right now. And that, that also, I, I know that that's jaded by, you know, these are the filters that I see the world through, mm-hmm. you know, on one end you've got, um, you know, let's call it like the super faux culture, um, and you know, whatever you want to call the Kardashian thing. Oh yeah. People, you know, living a life through social media. That's probably not all that much like their, their reality is day to day, but famous for kind of, we don't know what reason. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, you know, Hey, whatever people have got to find their, (laughs) find their motivation. Um, and I see so many, you know, I, I'm, I'm engaged in social media more as a, uh, follower than I am, you know, a poster, but I, I watch these things and I go, it's just so not where I'm comfortable. Like Mm -hmm. the, um, that I want to share things that are real and authentic, not Mm -hmm. like, Hey, here I am, you know, drinking this really great bottle of wine that no one, I, I don't know. There's a weird falsity that doesn't exist in Santa Maria. Yeah. Not, not the one that I know anyway. Um, it's a place where, um, you know, people of means don't, that's not what motivates them. Um, and yet you can still go there, there. If you want to find a job, there's a job there Mm -hmm. every day of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, And a home. And a home that people can afford. Mm -hmm. It's got, I always, I I think I, I always liken it to Ventura and you know, that, Mm it's a little kind of seedy and it has an underbelly and, and there's, mm-hmm. there's real world there. There's, mm-hmm. uh, people who are poor. There's mm-hmm. people who are, are, you know, just scrappy and grinding, mm-hmm. trying to make something out of nothing. And that appeals to me. I was um, born in Ventura. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, My parents, I, think, I grew up in, well, wait, it, these are oil towns. I yes, mean, totally. You know, it goes back to it goes back to Dust Bowl and people yeah. who came here because they were trying to find a better option. And then they did. And they did. I mean, yeah. that's, that's my family's story is they, they did find good things here. And, you know, I think about my dad leaving LA and my, and his own mother and family 
I think wondering what he was thinking by leaving LA. Mm -hmm. And, um, I do remember stories about his family believing that he was crazy to leave. (laughs) And then they would come visit and, you know, we lived in my, my parents are just such, they're utter craftsmen. They are amazing. They took this piece of dirt Mm -hmm. in Napomo. Um, I think it was $30,000 to buy and they had to give everything to get it. And then they got it and they like your family. It's I'll never forget when you said that the story of your property at Rancho Anaveros is a story. It's actually an ecological story Mm -hmm. of redemption that that level of redemption where this little piece of dirt in Napomo became, and I shouldn't say little, it's an acre. Um, but they, they used what they had, which was very little Mm -hmm. and it became like a garden of Eden. Yeah. Um, and then they ended up selling, um, for way, way more than they put into it, um, in 2005 and great timing. And they're doing so well right now, but it was a risk to leave, to do something new is a risk Mm -hmm. and to, to buy a place that has been stripped of all its minerals. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, quite literally (laughs) like, you know, on record as being stripped. Um, yeah. And that's such a lovely thing about your property also is I, I remember working with the wine marketing group and there's this tendency in the wine industry, especially if you're talking about places that have tasting rooms to make a place seem idyllic. Mm -hmm. And we wrestled with your property because it has actual oil pumps working still or not, not at this point, but still there's a, you know, been a, 25, 30 year kind of hiatus from, from much operation, but there's a big push for it to start again. I've just read about that, but these pumps, so there's just standing there Mm -hmm. and the vineyard is right there. And what do we, what do we say about this place? You can't avoid it. It's not like you can green screen it out or anything. Yeah. It's funny. And I, I think, uh, I, I think that's where I'm, I'm at that point now where it's really fun to now want to dig into that. I think for, I've never avoided it, but I've never put it on center stage. You know, people are, it's a sound bite. You know, you get three bullet points and I think the days of saying you get an elevator pitch, it's not that fast. Mm -mm. You try to have an elevator pitch. They're already walking away at their, at their phone or, you know, (laughs) like it's true. um, It's true. And yet, that's just, which is totally fine with me mm-hmm. because if that's all the time you've got, you're not my people. No. You, you know, like I, I don't mean <laughs> that, that that's, that's that they're not welcome, but yeah. what we have is actually so layered and complex mm-hmm. and, and deep and fascinating that this, you gotta, you gotta give this some time. Yeah. Um, and I think it's easier to kind of put that on the forefront now that we have, you know, 15 vintages of history yeah. of making beautiful wines from a property that was just, you know, really hammered and torn mm-hmm. up and that we've taken 25 years to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, has probably also been a link for you and I is that, is that recognition that the ecology can be totally challenged and yet we can fix a lot. Yeah. Um, with what my folks and I did with our property over that course of 25 years is take, you know, where there had been 
huge cuts made for, for oil operations to, to sit on a flat piece of ground on what would have been a rolling hillside, clean up all the materials that would have mm-hmm. been, you know, problematic or, uh, you know, just needed remediated, put those soils back. I mean, this is over a half section of land, mm. so it's taken a, a lot of time and so effort. So much work. Yeah. Um, but I think what's cool is that th- those, those wines do have a unique signature mm. that, it's about those those elements of I know that piece of property, mm-hmm. my folks, we know that piece of property like no one else. We can't transfer that. Mm-hmm. There's no I can't hand someone a map and mm-hmm. they're gonna get it. And so it's it's understanding that all those things were fixable. Um they've all now got to a place where you know, if you if you want to come back into a piece of property that hasn't had the the vineyard history, you know, that, that now parts of the ranch have, mm-hmm. we can apply what we've learned to these pieces that we fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a super, I mean, to me, that's my, that's what motivates me now is yeah. that the, the properties um, adjacent to us that we look at and go, hey, those things are just kind of forgotten about. Well, they're in the right climate. Yeah. They have the right soils. Yeah. We have a tremendous aquifer, which, you know, has been mm. adjudicated and doesn't have the same challenges that a lot of the rest of the, of the coastal valleys have. Um, I want to put my focus on going back and fixing that. Mm-hmm. And that's a legacy decision. That's yeah. not going to no, be No, that's something... not a your generation decision. No. And it's, you know, frankly, it's I'm doing it with five-year-old twins. The, the yeah. reality is it's probably... Uh, at best a 50 50 chance that that's a legacy that they're going to be interested in. Yeah. But it will be for somebody because mm-hmm. that back to, this is such an interesting time mm-hmm. that yes, there's social media nonsense and distractions like that. But we're again, our, our ethos is so similar. There's never been a time I think in modernity where people are now more, more curious and interested mm-hmm. about where their food comes from. Yes. Um, who's, how is it done? Who's mm-hmm. handling it? And I don't think people get access to what they actually want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's what's most motivating to me about the future on, on our home property. What do they want to know that they're not getting? Uh, I'm just, I'm getting this kind of, you know, through the filter of, of people who, um, you know, you just talk to, we, we grow organic you know, my, my home vineyard is organic, but I've never, that's not really a big motivator in the wine business, um, which is, you know, fine. Um, Mm -hmm. interesting, but like with our blueberry operation, so I have all these different hats. So you, I didn't know you farmed blueberries. So in, in my own personal stuff where Rancho Anaveros and Rancho Vineto and the vineyards and wine sit, we don't. Mm. Um, as you know, when, when we started myself and my partner, Matt Turrentine started, um, and it's uh, the best way to describe it and sum it up is an institutional investment company focused around ag assets. Mm -hmm. And so when we started that, we got into, uh, organic blueberries in this kind of counter seasonal market. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Maria based though. It's actually, uh, right where Napomo and Aurora Grande meet, um, <gasps> on the basic, it's on like the, 
the, I want to say the eighth hole of Cypress Ridge uh, golf course. Oh, it's not where I was thinking. <clears throat> okay. Because am I right in thinking blueberries love sandy soils? They do. Okay. Yeah. So the, that's that's a big sand dune up there that yeah. happens to have really high quality water. And so mm. that that's where I've learned so much. We, we have a, a marketing, um, uh, I guess it's an exclusive in the Northern California Bay Area. Yeah, it is. With Earl's Organics, who's, mm. these guys are like the OG um, of organic you know, brokerage, mm. they were doing it when it wasn't even a thing. Yeah. And so getting to learn as, as we've built this, this brand, uh, these great blueberries and are trying to put this product out there, there's a whole bunch of people who want to know, like, where's this come from? Does this come? Because there hadn't really been blueberries in this window of timing hmm. from North America. They've hmm. all been coming. It's kind of counter seasonal Yeah, as we're in the winter, this produce comes from South America. Yeah. Southern hemisphere. So Chile has been the, the main driver. And so now because of these very, you know, coastal environments, it's kind of a cool subtropical Mediterranean climate there. Hmm. We can get production in these windows. And it's from that interaction that I'm learning especially here in California, people, and it's back to, we always talk about, you know, where millennials are going to show up when they actually have, you know, full paying jobs and Mm -hmm. all these, Mm -hmm. well, they want really high quality products and they they do spend more for food too. Also, it's been shown. They, they, I think it's, it's a really neat opportunity for the future of agriculture is Mm -hmm. that they actually care. They want good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to understand who is this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, f- for us being in that blueberry space where we were one of the very few players, uh, with, uh, organic product mm-hmm. that's very high quality in this window of time, that's where I'm learning more and more. And, and, you know, it's really been fascinating and I, that's what makes me excited about it'd be easy to go. California continues to be the, it's got to be the most expensive place to do this oh, in this country. Totally. Um, if not the world mm-hmm. and the layers and the regulations that's, I mean, there are days where you just go, what am I doing? Why, am, why are we even doing <laughs> okay, this? If you're thinking that, and my job is just to talk to people who are wondering what they're doing. I mean, I'm like even a layer removed from you. There are, there are days like that for oh, sure. There, there are many, I mean, this, this state's not uh, without its challenges. Yeah. Um, but I think that's where that this is never, it's never a final product. We're always mm-hmm. just working mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to, how to make all this come together. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what I'm, I think is really the fascinating future is that people do care about quality mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a way that it's a different time. You know, you look at it is. people out at all these great restaurants. I mean, you know, mm. my wife and I had dinner at um, Brian and Harmony Collins's oh, Ember man. restaurant, you know, over the weekend. So special. Just go, I can't, if we're going to have a date night and get away from our kids, I can't not want to go give those people my money. I know like, it. Isn't that great? It's so phenomenal to see, again, local local product mm-hmm. serving local product. It is. Um, it's such a high level and, and, you know, 
what's happening down in Los Alamos where you've got these Insane. super, super committed, like artisans just crushing. Well, and the attraction yeah. that I was, I stopped off there. I went down to LA for the weekend and I stopped off in Los Alamos to get a present for the people I was staying with and popped into um, Bodega. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, it's like a, where am I? Uh, exactly. Because I mean, I remember stopping in Los Alamos on my way to LA to get a cup of coffee. And the only thing I could get, this is, you know, a while back, was stopping at the gas station. Yeah. Or if yeah. I was going to really take some time, go to Twin Oaks restaurant, yeah. which I very much wonder what will happen with that space because the stakes have become so much higher in that town now. For sure. Somebody's got an eye on it. And For and sure. that actually brings me to, I haven't done a great job talking to you now about really showing the arc of your narrative where you, you're, you know, Santa Maria born and raised long, long legacy, but not coming from a lot in terms of financial resources. And now you are so wound up in so many different endeavors. I mean, you do have your wine label, um, yes which is native nine, but then you also work. I mean, your day job is, is the investment, um, ag investments. Yes. Very, very serious day job too. Yeah. Like a really serious day job. Yeah. And to hear somebody like you talking about millennials buying blueberries, like what? I mean, you really have so many facets, so many fingers in so many pots. Um, but you also have a property in Los Alamos that Mm -hmm. you're building up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, with, yeah, life's, life's so fascinating how quickly things can change when, um, in roughly 2007, uh, right as the recession was starting to, to kind of look like it would be, you know, maybe coming, um, I had a, a brand, uh, a wine brand called Alta Maria, uh, that myself and Paul Wilkins, my partner had started, which was, you know, it's just that classic story, super small, super scrappy, mm-hmm. meant to be, um, what I would say is a negotiant brand. And that in, in the context of how I view the kind of nomenclature of that, there are estate brands like mm-hmm. native nine where, um, we own the vineyard, we planted it, we farm it. Linked to we, the soil. It's vertically integrated, yeah. you know, all the way back to the ground and that we farm it. And then that what I realized was there was a, that's a pretty limiting experience until yeah. you get to someone like, you know, Jackson Family Farms or, you know, it's these really big groups who have who have done this over years and made a state with scale all over the but place. That, that's very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided let's go do a negotiant approach, which would be buying the grapes and bringing them into our label. Um, and Paul being the winemaker and Paul. Yes. Yeah, kind of us working in concert. Mm-hmm. You know, we both had, I would say uniquely broad experience of, of really knowing and tasting and getting to drink super high quality wines, mm-hmm. which again, totally different time today yeah there's no way that you know young people at the age that i started are going to get to experience those wines no and that does make you different it It, does it the fact that there wasn't that lab palette of tasting only california i mean the bottles that you talk about having had yeah 
having access to those required friendships with the people who made them or people who had access to them. And also just, you know, that access, those friendships is one thing. And then even with those same friendships and access, there's now a price associated with those kind of archetype wines Mm -hmm. that you're just not going to, people aren't going to get to experience that anymore. Yeah. Um, I, you know, Paul and I converged because we, we'd gone to college together at Cal Poly. He went to work, went to work for John Alban and was the assistant winemaker. And Alban, um, was really on a, a really steep kind of meteoric rise with, yeah. Uh, with critical press and acclaim, and the I wines for- were were great. I forgot about Paul's lineage in terms of his work. I I yeah. think I always think of him as working with you or working with other. I always forget that he was assistant winemaker at Alban. That's huge. Yeah, for seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, and and at a time where again the arc was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he came with you know, and again we're all just we're so fortunate. You know, John is a John and Lorraine, very deep wine people. I mean, th- this isn't like, oh, we have this little vineyard and we're provincial with our knowledge. I mean, they're extensively understanding about, you know, the world of European wines mm-hmm. and, you know, just very deep knowledge that got shared with Paul. Yeah. Um, I had the same thing going on in a different way because I was had all these great clients at Bienacido and Mm -hmm. things like the world of Pinot Noir had come around, um, in 2000. And I want to say maybe 2000 was the first year of that, that or 01. Mm -hmm. And so getting into a room with these people and going to like the La Palais dinners Mm -hmm. that not the proper one in France, but like that Jim Clendenin would throw at Au Bon Climat in concert with the world of Pinot. And we were literally always around people who had great sellers and getting to drink Jaillet and Mm -hmm. Domaine de la Romanicanti and, you know, La Fleve. And I mean, I can genuinely say, you know, I got to have those wines so many times that I have a a real understanding of what that caliber of of product and quality is. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, what that style can mean. Mm -hmm. Um, That most, you know, if you're, you're, you know, trying to enter this world today, there's a price point and a rarity where you're just oh, not going to get that anymore. The gate is very, very high. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And so, you know, with Paul's background, what I, what I thought is I understand where I want to go with the Pinot. Um, I had been trying to kind of make the wines on my own with, you know, doing custom crush and other people's cellar. And I knew that I wasn't bringing to it what what could take it to a level much higher quality. Mm. And I trusted Paul's understanding of quality. He wasn't a Pinot guy. He was yeah. a Rhone guy. Right. But I think it, it's one of those things, if, if you understand quality, that can transfer. Yes. If you haven't got that, that kind of baseline understanding, um, I think that's hard. Yeah. And so we started working, our first vintage was a Pinot, a Syrah and a Grenache. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were, were really super, you know, super small production. It was, uh, in, in aggregate less than a thousand cases between those. Mm-hmm. And the long story short of how, how we got to Los Alamos <laughs> is that brand was, you know, grew from, from modest to being, 
you know, him and I having very complementary and different skill sets, when I saw what was coming with people with the recessionary concerns Mm -hmm. that I knew great vineyards and great sources because of all the things I had done leading up to this point in my career. Mm -hmm. And so with the 08 vintage, um, you know, the great recession hit in the fall of 08 and there were, there were all these, you know, there, the wine business had got to a point like we were just talking about these, you know, kind of iconic and archetype brands where even here in California, there was so much, you know, industry and movement that was positive mm-hmm. and people had, had contracted up all the really good vineyards. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of small scale folks who maybe weren't really deep on cash and were kind of shoestring operators. So the recession hits and you can, as a grower and someone who's representing a, a big um, set of grow, you know, vineyards, I'm starting to see all these grapes that are not going to get contracted in the future mm-hmm. that are phenomenal. And the prices are now coming down to a really um, far below what we would have expected had the recession not hit. Yeah. And so we decided Paul and I to like go, you know, <laughs> like go all in with yeah. a little bit of, of money. And that's the first time I'd, I'd ever really had to go to the bank and do some borrowing. Mm-hmm. And we, changed up the package, um, mm-hmm. to try to give it a more, you know, merchantable look, uh, mm-hmm. still very much part of the feel and story of who we were, but repackaged, um, and kind of hit, hit the throttle a little bit and, and ramped up with a Pinot and Chardonnay, um, that was targeted to, to not be so high priced like mm-hmm. all these single vineyards were, mm-hmm. but carry that same level of quality yeah. and try to hit a day-to-day price point where people could actually afford to, to you know, put it on by the glass and, yeah. and drink it. So we did that, and I would say um, the success of that was strong. And so we thought, let's open a tasting room. Mm-hmm. So we went to Los Olivos. And uh, we found a great spot and opened this tasting room that uh, wound up being our home for, I'm going to not remember exactly, but probably six or seven years. Yeah, several years. years. Yeah. yeah. It was a beautiful tasting room, too. It it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and Los Olivos, at the time that we came in, it was, was charming and small. There yeah. was maybe, I'm going to say, 10 or a dozen tasting rooms. And, and then by the time that we decided to, to make our move to Los Alamos. Um, all this stuff had kind of, you know, just caught fire. Yeah. Uh, Los Olivos is a, you mm. know, a destination for tourism now mm-hmm. that was, was actually so strong that it no longer felt like a good fit to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, what I mean by that is you, if it's back to, if you were making wines that probably had, um, a bigger impact, you know, where it's, it's easier to introduce wine. That's just, you know, big and, and like mm-hmm. delivers with a, 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 you know, power. It can punch you in the oak face. impact. Yeah. You know, those are wines that I think usually people find themselves starting with. That's, in their I, I mean, wine. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of us did. Yeah. Um, it, cause, because it's so strong that impact is so strong. It's hard to ignore exactly. and it's so different from some, and those wines can be very expensive to produce. They, so they you can. can taste a quality difference in 
I would say that that is the number one thing for my husband and I, when we started going out drinking wine, it's the punch you in the face stuff that we were like, sign us up. Yeah. And that changed over time. And it's interesting now. I, I mean, I, I do drink Pinot, but I mostly drink white wine. Mm -hmm. My, my spiritual experience, like your lane Tanner was drinking Spätlese Riesling Uh that what is this? Yeah. What have I got here? It's completely different than anything made in California. Yeah. And that was the journey to, um, yeah. Now there's a whole lot of whites in our fridge and, and that's the thing I'm drawn to. Um, not the giant, like once, once again, you and I are on the same page. Yeah. 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 It is. If I'm going to really treat myself, it's like a Sancerre or um, a Volnay, something mm-hmm. like that. That's yeah. where I go. Yeah. No, I, I think that that level of, of understanding about wine isn't something that comes in your primary entrance into mm-hmm. wine. That's that you've got a feel, you've kind of got comfort, and you start mm-hmm. you know moving through new channels. And mm-hmm. I always, I love, somebody once shared with me this analogy. It's like coffee, that if you're you know, in your teens or your twenties in college and you start drinking coffee, you know, you're going to, you know, now it's again, everything I've not that old, but it feels like things have changed. Well, a you, lot. we used to drink seven 11 coffee. Yeah. Say. It's like you would yeah. get, you know, drip coffee yeah. at a restaurant or, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're just starting, usually people would put some cream in it yeah. or put some sugar and kind of sweeten it and mm-hmm. fatten it. Um, you know, and it's funny that that then over time, People who kind of move their way into higher level coffee, I you may wind up now. at espresso or, yep, you know, totally. So, and so I, I think there's a real similar thing with wine where mm. it, it's not to throw rocks at big stuff. It's just Mm-mm. that that's a place where a lot of people get it. Curiosity and, often will lead elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so with us, we found ourselves making, um, it, Los, Los Olivos was a great fit early and it was still a great fit when we left, but we just felt like it had actually become such a busy place that um, it it wasn't really for us anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to be in a place where you could kind of not have to like wrestle your way mm-hmm. up to the bar, um, and and that's where Los Alamos actually it hadn't happened yet, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so we at, and at that point in time. Um, we had actually done a partnership with Joe Wagner, uh, mm-hmm. who I do a lot with, uh, Joe and his dad, Chuck, uh, with vineyards on our family's ranch. Um, so there was already a business relationship and friendship there. And what I had realized is that there's not one wine industry. There's a whole mm-hmm. lot of different layers that make up an industry. Yeah. And we had grown Altamaria um, into being what I would say had a little bit of a luxury pyramid approach. Mm-hmm. So the wines that we'd really, you know, focused our growth on were Santa Maria Valley, Pinot and Chardonnay and the Sauvignon Blanc that was Santa Barbara County appellated. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got some from Santa Maria, but some from warmer parts of the San Ynez Valley. So it wasn't so just like screaming yeah. uh, acid. Yeah. And so <laughs> those were the base of that pyramid. And then as you kind of went up the luxury, you know, verticals of that, lug- that pyramid, um, we were making wines that just, we, we love to make. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I, I don't know that 
you know, you never want to sound like you're patting yourself on the back, but I think we were a little bit prescient and mm-hmm. our, our, our palates were leading us to make wines that we wanted. Yeah. And so we were doing carbonic maceration yep. of, you know, Gamay selection of Pinot. Mm-hmm. We were doing rosé of old vine Pinot um, that there wasn't like a category, like it's it high pedigree. Yeah. It, yeah. There, there wasn't a category like there is now. <laughs> and, you know, that's become super big. And so those were wines that industry people came to see us for these carbonics and rosés of old vine stuff. And then the top of that pyramid was this single vineyard stuff from being the Cito or, or what we were trying to do was really showcase all the different high quality vineyards that people hadn't heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, that it wasn't just, Hey, let's charge more money by slapping a name of a vineyard on it. But we understand this area. Let's go tease out what's yeah. really cool and share that with people. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a great following and the concept with Joe Wagner was, let's now bolt a bigger tier onto the bottom mm-hmm. um, because they actually had real, you know, s- credibility and strength with distributors and the ability to move uh, a volume of wine that we had no ability to do. Yeah. And so those things all coming together caused us to start looking at Los Alamos where we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have our own house where there was actually food and, mm-hmm. you know, there could be some music and there's a, you know, outdoor area where, you know, the whole, the whole thing that sounded good was inviting people in to slow down and mm-hmm. really dig in and stay. Hang out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that, that's what led us to Los Alamos. And that was probably, um, again, a little bit prescient. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, now this booming, thriving thing. And ironically, I still haven't opened that space. So we've had it for, uh, it's embarrassing three years and we, we do some events there, but Mm -hmm. we've never got to a place where, where we were operators of, of a day to day thing as much as it's kind of pop up, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so that, that looks like it's probably about to change and become a more regular operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if everything goes right, that'll happen by mid-May. Uh, oh so, my, that soon? Yeah. Oh, so cool. That's the goal. And okay. We still, you know, have events there in the meantime. But will it be called Alta Maria? No. In fact, at this point, Alta Maria won't be part of the Not equation. Not a part of it. Okay. Uh, it'll just be my two estate brands, Native mm-hmm. Nine and Rancho Vinedo. Oh, okay. Um, and then the the goal is. We, what's taken probably half of this really long time was we went to the county for, um, a unique permit that allows us to do what, what we refer to as a demonstration fermentation area. Right. And this was the part that always interested me. Yeah, no, it, for it to interest me, it has to have a lot of moving parts and make sense to <laughs> not many people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the formula. Yeah. Yeah, right. So if there's any thread of a <laughs> commercial opportunity, I'm not nope. usually good <laughs> on the personal side of my, my uh, life. So the concept there is that um, I love that people from Southern California want to be up here and, and understand mm-hmm. more about where their food comes from, yeah. how they're how these vineyards are grown, where the wine is made. And, you know, just generally, I want to go deeper, not Mm -hmm. broader. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the concept of let's bring, we see it in breweries, but you don't see it with wines because they 
they're only made, you know, for a 70 day window. It's so seasonal. Uh, and so we thought if we, if we set this up in a way that people who don't have a connection mm-hmm. can come in and see, here's what a fermentation smells like. It smells as what it looks first thing like. I'm thinking. Yeah. And this is, you know, tasting a wine that's still going through malolactic fermentation. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, trying to do that in a, uh, in a way that, you know, not, not with scale, but just mm-hmm. for people to, to get a better sense of, of what makes this project or this product so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, yeah, if the concept plays out right, mm-hmm. you know, there's food, there's wine, there's music, there's fun. It's a beautiful little town. Yeah. And we get to do what, what my intention was all along, which is do high quality, but like humble, you know, simple, yeah. it's back to Santa Maria, mm-hmm. you know, keep it reasonably, you know, it's, it's not white tablecloth. It's yeah. like just sit down and have something good mm-hmm. and homey. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of food, I, I'm curious. I mean, you've eaten so many incredible things, I'm sure. I mean, I know you've spent a lot of time overseas and whether that's France or Japan or you've been a lot of places. If you were told this gets morbid, but if you were told you were going to die tomorrow, what would be on your tray at the hospital if you could have anything? Oh, I think um, it's funny for for those of us who are kind of gourmand-minded, you know, you have these things in your head, and you and and Jake and I share this love of Italy mm-hmm. that, uh, by the way, Jake is your husband, for those who may someday <laughs> be listening and wonder, who is this Jake? Uh, Phantom. But I had... Uh, I was in in Italy, uh, in Piemonte, and mm-hmm. more specifically in um, Barbaresco, and with visiting the Gaia family in '05 uh, with these these three crazy guys, uh, Jim Smith, who was at Southern Wine and Spirits, and Garrett Van Wagner, who was a, a wine lover and aficionado, uh, and Greg Lynn, who's a crazy individual who also you know loved wine and and we got to be friends with with Gaia Gaia Angelo's daughter um while she was working here in the states and we were just constantly eating and drinking and having fun and she Mm -hmm. said you guys should go back with me uh because harvest was about to be be going and so we went back with you know Angelo's (laughs) oldest daughter to the first time she'd been out of the country on her own she brings these four big crazy californians uh <laughs> that was quite maybe kind of loud a, and <laughs> yes we, we we definitely left some some fingerprints and footprints around northern italy uh, but we went to this amazing restaurant where it, it was it's so cool to get to do something that just isn't what you would do at home because you you're not comfortable with that. Yeah. But I remember having um, at a restaurant called Cesare. Mm-hmm. They're famous for like the baby goat on mm-hmm. a you know on a rotating um, like on a spit. Rotist- yeah, yeah, exactly over a fire. You know, small. The restaurant's not much bigger than the living room of your house, mm-hmm. and we had. There was, there was five of us, and if there were less than fifty, you know, huge, you know, Burgundy Nebbiolo mm. stems of all these great wines mm. that she had brought, and they brought out this 
baby goat and mushroom salad of all, you know, at mm. that time of year is when they start foraging for, for white truffles yeah. and all these other mushrooms. And so the, that meal of, you know, this mushroom and goat salad and white truffles shaved Intense. over over just eggs, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that you go, oh, here we are at this great restaurant and the first, the, like, appetizer course was like just eggs with white truffles over them. It yeah. was... Uh, that would be the meal if I could mm-hmm. relive. Um, it would probably be number one. Italians have there's something that they do with simplicity. What they're able to do simply, I feel like I cannot do simply. They just have a way with just a few things that nails they, it. They do. I, I think it's funny if there's one thing that I, you know, when you start, you get to be. I'm 45 now, so I'm gonna call that, I guess, middle aged, mm-hmm. um, and when you go, what do I want to impart on people? So many of my friends, you know, they're interested, but they don't know wine. Yeah. Like my really long time friends, I've got all these like wine industry mm-hmm. friends that that's different, but they don't necessarily like, you know, they want to get it, but mm-hmm. they don't. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that we probably, as much as I love Burgundy and I, you know, that was kind of my, my initial, you know, white Burgundies like, kryptonite for me um i think the reality is italy's a better for for where i'm at in my life now Mm. it's a better place for me to to have as a touchstone because the as you said the simplicity of their food comes back to that they're doing good local product yeah um there's you would never see what we've got going on here where it's It's, you know, the, the simple, like, as we think about organic produce mm-hmm. that we're selling here in California, trucks, not boats. Yeah. If it's got to come from a boat from another hemisphere, you're not seeing a high level of freshness. Yeah. That's got to play for, you know, 90% of people's consumption. We know it's got to just yeah. come from a economical place that's going to make it work. But as you deal with really high end experiences, mm-hmm local and fresh and higher quality ingredients. Um, they just, I think, especially for me in the North of Italy, it's the highest level I've, I've ever found. And they have a command, you know, it's the grandmas have a command over those things. Yeah. And a sense, uh, a sixth sense about seasonality and it's just, it's the way things are done. Well, where would you go if you knew you only had a month to go spend the rest of time? It's funny. I, I think I'd spend some of it in Italy, but the truth is I'd stay home. (laughs) I would totally stay home. I mean, I might even, I think I'd spend a fair amount of time at Jocko's, (laughs) (laughs) especially at the bar. That's awesome. And I would probably drink their wine out of a box. You know, the $3 itty bitty glass. Yeah. The Libby. The weapon. The, totally the Libby. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. I, I halfway thought that you would say San Marino style barbecue just because, I don't know, I think about Broadway choked with smoke <laughs> and all of the, all of those uh, grills out and the lines and just yeah, I, the smell of Broadway on like a Saturday. Yeah. No, it's a, it's funny. It, it, back to you and I've had this conversation so many times if you were fortunate enough to grow up 
with a consistent real food culture like Santa Maria barbecue is, it it's part of your your history in a way mm-hmm. that you know your olfactory just brings that up yeah. in, instantly, and uh, it's a really nice thing. It is, and yeah. my tummy's grumbling right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to my house talking to me. You're very welcome. Okay. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Consumed. Special thanks to Chris Lambert, who advised me and edited the show. Want to hear more? Visit letsgetconsumed.com for more tasty interviews and news about upcoming episodes. And please share Consumed with a friend. The more, the merrier. Until next time, this is Jamie Lewis.